Uh, he does sing a small song to the dogs, which is, Who are my doggies? Who are my doggies? When he comes from, when he comes home from work, it, that's it. That was the whole song, but maybe you could do it in your voice, 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 voice. Who are my doggies? Are my doggies? Are my doggies? Who are my doggies? Who are my doggies? Are you my doggies? Are you my doggies? Do you love me? That's our amazing brother, the Chionis. <laughs> Welcome to Unrefined Women. I know this is a very unconventional intro for us. I'm your co-host, Margaret. And I'm Agnes. This podcast is an ongoing dialogue between two sisters on the topics of spirituality, religious trauma, mental health, family dynamics, and feminism. We're grateful you could join us today. In this week's episode, we have our brother, well, my older brother, but her, Margaret's younger brother, Andrew, and his beautiful wife, Nissa. So we had Nissa on our podcast back in episode 21, and we decided to bring Andrew back or on the podcast along with Nissa so that we can open up the conversation of environmentalism and biology and all the amazing stuff that they're doing for our environment right now. If you're really interested in uh, environmental science and uh, particularly women working in STEM and in the sciences, please go back and listen to episode 21 with Nissa. She talked a whole bunch about um, the environment and different species and what happens when species go instinct. Um, she also talked about being a woman in a male-dominated field of the sciences. So today we talked a lot about environmentalism, what Andrew and Nissa both see happening in the Pacific Northwest uh, with their work. Andrew works with uh, Salmon, and Nissa works for a company that uh, helps out with uh, preserving the environment, specifically where there's new construction and developments happening. So making sure that everything is staying up to code and that the environment is preserved when there is building happening in the area. So it was really great to pick their brain and hear what they see happening just from their own uh, personal lives, what they witness at, just as citizens um, in their community, but also what they see happening in their work uh, with the environment, with climate change, and with the animals. Yeah, and honestly, Andrew and Nissa are such delightful people. Now I feel like there's such a trend of like the Pacific Northwest and being granola and crunchy and foraging. And they are exactly that without even trying. On the weekends, they go out in the woods and they forage for mushrooms and they play their flutes and they just live such a unique life. Even in this episode, they're talking about baking bread and making homemade wine. And they're just living the life that we all wish that we could live. <laughs> so we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. So, Nissa, this is your second time on our podcast, and Andrew, or do you, do you want us to call you Drew? Because I know, Nissa, you call him Drew. What do you prefer? Sure. Drew? It's going to be it's gonna be so hard for me because today I was thinking about this episode. I'm like, how am I going to call him Drew? I just know Andrew. Who the heck is Drew? <laughs> it's just, just like my... feels natural. 
Yeah, it's. I'll, I'll have to get used to it. Oh, you're not gonna call him bro. No, <laughs> we so, weren't really so. like that growing up. I feel like. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, we were more like. Aggie, shut up. <laughs> I like how you call me Aggie. That's what uh, Quinn does. Quinn always calls me Aggie and nobody else does. It's so weird. Oh. Yeah, we all have like our weird nicknames for each other. Andrew, I don't know. You mm-hmm. and I were so close in age. I'm sure that we called each other idiot and stupid more than anything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, Nissa, it's your second time on the podcast, and Andrew, it's your first time on the podcast. And I have to give a shout-out. Andrew is the one that does our gratitude prompt music at the end of every single episode. We have your beautiful Native American fl- flute playing, and I love it. I play the zesty flute tune. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy that everyone has to hear it, every one of your episodes. <laughs> They're like, oh, not this again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's beautiful. I love it that we have we have it yeah. on there, and I'm really honored that you shared that with us, so we can have it as part of all you know, part of our podcast. It's a whole family ordeal now. He, he plays that flute when we go hiking, and we'll like sit for lunch in this beautiful spot with like big old trees around us. There'll be a little creek running, and we're like sitting <laughs> in the moss with fairies. And then he takes out his Native American flute, and he plays Aww. like the most enchanting, beautiful song to nature. It's beautiful. You're like hobbits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm getting right now. I and sometimes if, if Nissa is like going really slow, or she's taking pictures of mushrooms, and it's taking a long time, I think, Well, we're not going anywhere anytime soon, so I better bust out the flute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, speaking of going out in nature, I want to hear your side of the story, Drew, of how you got into this whole realm of (laughs) biology and the environment and everything that you do. Well, when we were were kids, um, I know, Margaret, you were into this and John, but we like to go outside and run around and we made little survival kits with like our <laughs> wax dipped waterproof matches and our little wire saws and stuff. Were, there, were those the ones in Altoids containers? Altoids oh containers, my gosh. Yeah. And mom would take <laughs> us to a forest preserve and drop us off or we'd run around the neighborhood. Um, but we like to be outside and do nature stuff. Not a whole lot, but sometimes. Um, I guess I just stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have very vivid memories of you going to Borders Books and Music and getting like the big giant animal encyclopedias <clears throat> and you would read those things cover to cover. You were so interested in all these different species from the time you were a small child until now. Like it's just continued. It's a whole lifelong love affair with nature and animals. Thanks for reminding me of that. I had Quite the stack of animal books. And you used to keep them in your and bed. You slept with them. Yes. <laughs> I did. As you look at Nissa, <laughs> now you know. These all shared rooms. And we had no private space except for our beds, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything else was public space. And so if you don't want anyone, can I swear? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. If you don't want anyone oh, to yeah. touch your shit, you put it in your bed. <laughs> And ideally, hide it under your blanket so no one sees it and messes with it. Mm-hmm. And so, especially I, I being a... homeschooled, like that's your desk. Yes. That's where you do everything. You sit in bed. <laughs> <laughs> and we had like super old mattresses too, so the mattresses had like the springs sticking through. <laughs> Spring mattresses. 
Oh gosh. We had some sweet bunk beds though. Um, oh yeah. I can't remember who it was, but one of Dad's friends built us those really nice bunk beds. It was it was but. Grandpa Joe who built those, I think. No, it was it was a family friend. Maybe yeah, Grandpa helped. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. But I had a lot of animal books, and I wanted to be a zookeeper at first, and then I got a little older and a little cooler, and I decided the dinosaurs were rad, and I wanted to be a dinosaur zookeeper, but realized that I actually, they're all dead, except they're not, they're birds, but I decided, oh, I want to be a paleontologist, and then I got into fishing, and thought, oh, well, I could be a fish person. And now you're still a fish person. No, I'm still a fish person. And, and it's you guys, I love you guys were successful at the fishing. I remember you guys going down to the Fox River. But before then, you guys would spend the entire week. Actually, tell us the process. I want to hear about this from you because I remember this being a little child and watching this go down. My favorite quarry was the um, the uh, the esteemed carp, and. Carp love to eat corn, so our brother John and I would um, buy 50-pound bags of dried field corn from Farm and Fleet, and Ew. we every every day we would boil up as much as we could in the crock pot to get it all steamed up and full of moisture, and then we would go chum our fishing spot every day for a week, and then we go and the the carp were just all waiting for the daily feed. <laughs> Except that daily feed had hooks in it. We caught them. <laughs> and let them go. But it was still mean. You know, I actually even have memories with you, Margaret, when we would go fishing. And we would always go with Mr. Walsh, too. And we would bring all the fish back to our backyard. And I have a memory of you, Margaret, getting a fish and smacking it against the, the, <laughs> the picnic table we had in the backyard. And you guys would kill the fish. And then we would cut them open and cook them in the kitchen and eat them. I remember when John and I were frowned upon for fishing in the lake at the school where you, Margaret, were taking, you were doing orchestra. your youth orchestra at the Christian school. There's a pot. Stormwater retention pond outside the Christian school stocked with fish. John and I fished. We kept every fish and put it in a bucket. And the, the, the director's wife found out and was horrified that we had slaughtered like 40 fish. <laughs> <laughs> and we ate them all. Like we took them home and cleaned them up and fed them to the family. And the next time we were out there, there were no fishing signs that had magically arisen around Aww. the lake. So after all that with our childhood, I have like, I'm just thinking like all these weird, vivid memories that I have from my childhood. But I remember when you started working at the mall and now you were cool and you started working at what store did you work at? I can't remember. Abercrombie and Fitch. Abercrombie and Fitch. That's yeah. Cool. So you went through this like really cool, like I'm a raver. Did you go to raves? I don't know. I remember you going to Not like concerts. Rave. Yeah, you would go to, like, heavy metal concerts. You would collect monster cans, and you worked at the mall, and you were just the coolest person. And then you decided to move to Oregon. So how was that for you? I decided that the party life was unfulfilling, and I was happiest when I went fishing and Mm -hmm. spent time in nature going for walks outside. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, I want to do what makes me happy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Is that your kind of what led you to make the decision to move to Oregon? Definitely. Yeah. And so we, what happened? What what brought you to Oregon originally? Was it a job or was it school? Um, I, I don't had, actually even know this. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't serious about school because, number one, I had to work to pay my bills full, full time at minimum wage, which doesn't pay for shit. Mm-hmm. And, and then also go to school, which even with my federal Pell Grant, it covered most of it, but then I'd have to pay some money and then still pay my bills, have a car that works, and pay rent if I don't want to live at my parents' house. This is in Illinois. In Illinois. And so, and I also wanted to party. <laughs> so uh, I didn't do well in my classes, and then I made the conscious decision that, okay, I want to do something that makes me happy because retail sucks, and my life is unfulfilling, and I like nature and fish. And so I want to follow a career with fish and aquatic life. And to do so, I need a college degree. And so I need to do everything I can to get that college degree being super broke and not having a reliable car. (laughs) And so I moved to Oregon. Well, I started looking at jobs. Okay, can I get an entry-level job? Or maybe I could make some money and get some experience doing some field work, um, and and maybe that'll help me out. And so I looked at jobs, and I saw, oh, wow, most of the jobs are in the PNW because salmon are endangered there, and so there's all this federal funding that goes to salmon there. And so I just started applying to jobs, and I got one <laughs> in Oregon, and um, and that started it. And I think the really awesome part about all of this is our mother's side of the family. I'm not sure about how much now, but at least at that point, what, five, ten years ago, they were all out there. And I remember when you were applying for jobs and we so mom and us younger kids were actually out there for a couple of months and you came to visit. I don't know if you remember this, but we all took like a beach day and you took our big van and we drove all along the coast and i would just rem- and we saw whales do you remember that we saw yeah we whales. were looking out yeah that was so cool that's like such a core memory in my life awesome. um but cool. anyways yeah that was really cool and just being able to like go out and do that cuz i remember as well in my childhood like spending a lot of time outside um and just just they were like that as kids but then also being able to experience that like in the pacific northwest um so after that point in your life, how was it in Oregon? So you've got your job, you've moved out there, and then what? Well, the move was easier because of the family here. Mm-hmm. So I had a home base of Grammy's house. Um, and I worked that first summer job. And I remember I got a ride out there because Grammy lived in Western Oregon and the job was in Eastern Oregon. So I flew to mm-hmm. Portland. Um, Grammy's neighbor drove me to Eastern Oregon where I had a bicycle and a rental lined up through Craigslist and uh, worked that job. And the first th- thing that struck me was, wow, nature here is not pristine. We are hammering the shit out of nature and using most of the water so the fish barely have any, and 
I saw a bunch of fish and I saw spawning salmon, but I also saw salmon dying in puddles because humans were using all the water to water crops in the middle of the day while most of the water was evaporated. Mm -hmm. And then I got into environmentalism also because I wanted to do something about it. So what have you done uh, with environmentalism? Is that like activism or what have you done? Activism. Okay. I volunteer for environmental advocacy groups whenever I have the opportunity. Nissa and I explore outside every weekend and when we see something being done that's illegal or shady um, we tip off the regulatory agencies who often do not enforce their own rules and we also tip off environmental advocacy groups who hold regulatory agencies accountable to enforce their own rules. Hey everyone, we hope you're enjoying this week's episode. We'd like to take a quick moment to pause and tell you about our Patreon. Unrefined Women offers a pay-what-you-can model in which each tier has access to the same content and community. This follows our values that each person is worthy and deserving of connection, regardless of financial circumstances. And some of the benefits to joining our Patreon include access to our virtual monthly Sunday brunch, online private community where we share Q&As, memes, behind-the-scenes content, and general conversation. Additionally, we post a bonus episode each month. You can access our Patreon by downloading the Patreon app or going to patreon.com on your browser and looking up Unrefined Women. As always, we are so grateful for your support. Running a podcast requires a lot of time and financial commitment on our part. Thank you so much for being a part of our community. And now back to the episode. Uh, last summer, we actually were able to stop the federal government from clear-cutting a restoration project after a wildfire because we tipped off some environmental groups who then got a hold of the Forest Service and started to question them about it. Didn't they sue them, too? That, I think well, they did, yeah. They did sue them. I think there was a lawsuit involved. <clears throat> Now, Nissa, so you, your job is actually working with something with the environment, right? Can you fill us in on what your job is again? And for anyone listening that's been following our podcast, we actually did a, an episode with Nissa back on episode 21. So if anyone wants to get more of Nissa's backstory and all that, because she's a delightful human, please tune back to that episode as well. Um, but can you remind us again what your job specifically is within the sciences? Uh, absolutely. I am a contractor for the National Marine Fisheries Service, and I work with the Puget Sound area of Washington conducting endangered species consultations. And what that means is that when federal money or a federal agency wants to do something, they are um, obligated by the law to consult on that action. It's called an action. That's a word, buzzword. Action! Um, and then action can be something as simple as um, installing a new dock in, because I'm in the, the Sailor Sea, the Puget Sound, and so they could install a new dock. Or it could be as complicated as replacing an entire marina. Um, in the non-water world, it could be cutting down trees with the Forest Service. It could be putting up a new bathrooms at a campsite. 
um, certain things trigger a consultation. So that's what I do, and what that means is that we conduct an analysis on the endangered species that are part of the list, the endangered species list, either, either endangered or threatened, and we determine how that action is going to affect those species. And if it's really bad, um, we end up writing either recommendations for how to change the project or we write some terms and conditions they're called for the projects that basically say you know you can do this but you've got to put your bathroom back a little bit over here or you've got to make sure that you leave a riparian buffer on the trees if you're going to log them that kind of a thing so it's very dynamic very fast-paced um, the National Marine Fisheries Service is full of disturbingly smart humans and we're always running as fast as we can to, can to catch up with the workload. And at the end of the day, I'm completely spent. Wow, I can imagine. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a lot involved in your day-to-day -day life. It's dynamic. I get to be part biologist, part engineer, and a problem solver. Wow. Um, and it's, it's, it's fantastic, except for the only thing is that I'm sitting at a computer doing all those I just wish I was moving a little bit more. <laughs> now, Andrew, do you get to actually go out in the field a lot more than Nissa does? Because Nissa, I believe you work from home, correct? I do. Okay. I get to go on field trips. Nice. Okay. Usually at least once per week. I get to go outside and play, which is nice. And how often do you, or, or where do you go in this? Is it like far, out of state, or just in Oregon? Um... My jurisdiction is the county. We live in Coos County, Oregon. Okay. In okay. Coos Bay, which is the largest city on the Oregon coast of a, I think, a whopping 16,000 people. And my service area is this county. I work for the Soil and Water Conservation District, and we do conservation projects on private land, mostly on farmland. Okay. So... From both of your experience, I'm curious, what is the most surprising thing that you feel like you've learned about the environment since this whole journey? <laughs> I probably opened a can of worms with this question. <laughs> okay. It's been very surprising finding out that the efforts that you think are ongoing as a child, like when you read those books that Drew was reading mm -hmm. and hearing about, oh, we're saving, help saving the rainforest and helping to whatever, save, save the whales, that kind of thing. And when you're a kid, you think the world's getting better. To me, the most surprising thing, and um, to get depressing on the situation, has been that the world isn't necessarily getting better, that we have been doing things since I was a child that, and, and thought that everything was golden that have been degrading it further. And that even with the science, the information that we know, and we know how to change the world, um, we have not done so, and we continue to not do so. Um, there are certainly people, organizations, amazing things happening all the time around us. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of like crushing a little girl's dreams of saving the earth 
Um, that's been very surprising to me as my career has went on to say, oh, shoot, it's not like you think it is, Nessa. You're not going to go in and, and make it everything turn around. What about you, Drew? I was surprised by the same thing where everyone says, we're saving salmon. And then you look at the population trends and you see, wait, billions of dollars later, we're not saving salmon. Um, but the hopeful side is that as an individual, I think you can make a difference. And it often feels hopeless. But I have seen where certain individuals have seen a need for leadership on a certain species or in a certain area, and they will have a ton of motivation to go out and make a difference. And I've seen that happen with freshwater mussels, the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation based out of Portland. They started out with uh, bumblebee and butterfly conservation, but a member of the Xerces Society saw that uh, freshwater mussels were largely being ignored in the Pacific Northwest, and she went out and started talking to people from every federal and state agency that dealt with natural resources saying, hey, we need to care about freshwater mussels too because they're an indicator species. They're really sensitive to water quality and habitat. Um, we think some of the species are declining and we know almost nothing about them. And so now every conservation group and natural resource agency in Oregon is thinking about mussels, surveying for mussels. And there's actually a petition with the Fish and Wildlife Service right now to get one species of freshwater mussel listed on the endangered species list. Okay. And is that, a pe- is that a petition that you sign online, or how does that work? It is a petition that is put before scientists with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they have to review the science on the species and, and make a decision. And there is opportunity for public input and they are supposed to take into account the public input okay so once an animal is on the endangered species list what changes what kind of actions are then taken to begin protecting that animal from extinction the hard questions um when an animal is listed there is a status report, a status review. Ideally, status reviews come out every five to 10 years for every species. Sometimes they're lumped together, like you'll get the salmon species, two of them together, or three or four in the same report. But there's a status review, and that says, okay, how are we doing? Like, how dire is it? Which populations are doing really terribly? Which ones are doing okay? And from there, there is a recovery plan made. And the agency responsible, either U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or National Marine Fisheries Service, writes a recovery plan with certain recovery goals. And they might be really lofty, um, and they might be fluffy. Sometimes they're fairly specific, um, and they're revisited. So every time you do that, the species review, then you're going to make your recovery plan kind of staggered back and forth. What are we going to do? Okay, what do we know? What are we going to do? And 
there are funds dedicated to helping species recovery, but unfortunately it's pretty tough for species to recover in general. Um, so in theory, there's a plan and in practice, those plans sometimes get executed and it really depends on who's the driving force and what's the driving force of the funding and how much does the public care. Um, it's just a, it's a matter of politics, unfortunately. It's not like the endangered species list uh, is saving a lot of species. Most of the species that get delisted are ones where we've not recovered them, but instead we found additional populations. Or there was one simple reason why they were endangered. For example, bald eagles. DDT. The, the main reason they were endangered was because the, yeah, the pesticide DDT was poisoning them. We banned DDT and there are bald eagles uh, quite widespread across the, the U.S. now. Um, now, if bald eagles also didn't have any habitat left, or very little habitat left, they'd still be endangered. Because it's really hard to bring back quality habitat for species that need it. Now, is that because of certain things going on in the environment? Is this because of climate change? What specifically do you see happening that makes it really hard to bring an environment back for a species? The main reason is we have... Um, Yeah. <laughs> the C word, the C word. I'd say that the main reason is attitude. And uh, the second reason is we have used the attitude of domination and changing things to our whims to change the landscape across the world. Um, and the United States, for example, has had most of its wetlands drained. And wetlands are critical habitat for a lot of sensitive species and they provide a lot of human services like flood water storage um, but when you drain it then you increase flooding downstream from that wetland you ruin that habitat for the frogs and the fishes and if someone is farming or living in a housing development on that subdivision or on that uh, wetland it's really hard to change it back to a wetland and even if you do some kind of restoration to get some habitat value back for that wetland, it's not going to function anywhere near as well as the original wetland did. So we basically changed most of the habitat. Um, and I would, I'd say that's the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge. And the solutions are to protect the best habitat that's left. So don't wreck the remaining wetlands, and um, wetlands that have been destroyed but the land isn't being used, convert them back to functioning wetlands, and wetlands that are still being used for another purpose, like a farm, try to get some of that habitat value back. Like the really wet areas that never dry up, plant trees and shrubs around them, fence them off from livestock if you have livestock, and to try to protect the water quality and uh, try to get some value back from that habitat. Now, would I be correct in assuming that money is kind of a driving force here and uh, where you drain these wetlands and you have 
environments for animals that are now turned into like subdivisions, as you were saying. I'm, I'm assuming that politics and money are probably a large part of the problem. Is that correct? I would say that money is not the biggest motivator. I would say that attitudes and beliefs towards what the best use of land is. Okay. Um, a wetland provides a vast number of services to humans. We Scientists have started calling them ecosystem services, and some scientists have even been publishing papers assigning dollar values to these ecosystem services because that's what capitalism thinks, is what's the dollar value of that land. But they're invisible services. So when there's a flood and a lot of the flood water is absorbed and held and released slowly by many acres of saturated soil and a wetland, you don't see a dollar amount in a bank account. You just, you know, don't get flooded out. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to visualize that. Um, and if you like to go duck hunting, uh, then, you know, that wetland making ducks is hard to visualize until you stop seeing ducks. You can't go duck hunting anymore. But to, to go off of what you're saying, um, I think that the way that we live is different now, um, where there's a driving force that has changed everything in terms of how far we go to go to work, how far we go to go to school. People are living in a world where we get things online from other countries. We've been getting things from other countries, and we don't live small anymore. So your property, which is another trigger word, right? But your place where you're living is um, m much expanded. And the land use, you, whereas it used to be more localized, you're growing maybe some of your own food, you're getting food from your neighbors, you're getting food from your community. Now we've converted in and we're in this thought process of, okay, well, how can we maximize the amount of, say, corn per acre? Or how can we maximize the amount of anything else per acre? And that has shifted the way that we use land incredibly. And that's occurred over just the last 100 years, really, maybe 200 years, Industrial Revolution stuff. And so it's pushed us to the situation where now we've, we convert these big areas into something that they weren't originally because we need to maximize that um, profit. So I want to go a little bit backwards where we, you kind of mentioned uh, some of the like legal aspects of the whole environmental crisis that's going on right now. Um, what are some, like, I want to talk about policy for a minute because I recently took in like a basic environmental science class and that kind of terrified the shit out of me because we did like a bunch of surveys that were like, if everybody lived like you, we would need three and a half earths to sustain it or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just trying to drive to work every day. Um, but a lot of what we learned is about like politics and policy and just how that is such a driving force in a lot of the issues that we're facing. So what is your experience with that? Have you noticed policies, at, not just like in you know, your lifetime, but just in the last couple of years that have either 
been beneficial for the environment or detrimental for the environment? That's a biggie. So environmental (laughs) policy drives a bunch of what we do, right? And it allocates funds. So behind every policy is enforcement, allocation, and it changes depending on administration, and it changes over time. We have big environmental policies in the United States, such as NEPA, which is the National Environmental Policy Act. We have the Endangered Species Act. We have the Clean Water Act. And there's policy, and then there's the sub-policy, which is called, oh, what's it called? Mm, I don't know. It's called, like, the rules that are around that policy. And some of them are more successful than others, and some of them have changed. Like, for example, the Clean Water Act used to be um, really only the Rivers and Harbors Act, the Safe Rivers and Harbors Act, which was regulating more of a commerce thing. And so to say if they work or not or which ones work is really tough, but... Some of them that don't work or could work better, it depends on the agency that's responsible for implementing them. So to get hyper-specific, the Clean Water Act is implemented by a bunch of different agencies, but the EPA is the big one, uh, Environmental Protection Association, Um, and but it's also implemented by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers because that's where people get their Clean Water Act permits. And so on one side, the EPA is more liberal, and the other side, the Army Corps of Engineers, is much more conservative. And by conservative, I mean worse for the environment um, in terms of what they'll allow. And so if... The Army Corps of Engineers wants to give a permit to drain a wetland, it's called a a drain and fill permit, then there are other acts that might be triggered, but that regulating agency, at the end of the day, needs to take responsibility of the policy. And so, in my opinion, Clean Water Act is one that has not worked very well. Um, We have protected a lot of wetlands since it was implemented, which I think was... 78, 79, but um, a lot of those big policies have overarching issues that are associated with administration and with the politics inside the agency itself. Um, On a local level, on smaller levels, counties, states can implement programs that have their own policies, sub-policies, as long as they're stronger than or equal to, say, the EPA policy on, of the, on the Clean Water Act. So, like, let's say copper in the water. You can have a, a local or a state jurisdiction that allows less copper in your water than the EPA does. But you can't go vice versa. You can't say, hey, I want, I want here out in Wyoming to have the big copper levels and that's okay because we've got a lot of copper mines and we just want to promote those so 
Um, those can be implemented with varying degrees of success as well. Um, I think I'm going to let Drew talk about that a little bit more because he deals with the implementation of state and local policies much more than I do. First of all, if you see your neighbor draining a wetland and it looks like it might not be legal, call it in because a lot of people illegally drain wetlands. And then you have to follow up on the state agency who you report it to to make sure that they actually enforce it if it is illegal because they often, they often don't. And can you repeat the question again? Because I was taking bread out of the oven. <laughs> he, was, he was taking bread out of the oven. <laughs> uh, Agnes, I'll let you go. <laughs> I, I was just asking about environmental policy and what policies are good and what col- policies are bad for the environment. I think the policies that are good uh, protect the best habitat we have and make it hard to destroy it. Um, and... We need to, I guess, I think the Endangered Species Act is like, uh, which is one of our main environmental policies, is damage control. Um, and we can't, we can't protect something until it's listed. Yes. So when something has decreased so much that it might go extinct, then Endangered Species Act kicks in and we have to protect it. But it's at a level that's so low, it's really hard to recover it. Um, So uh, I think our society as a whole has acknowledged that, but it's really hard to change the Endangered Species Act because Democrats want to change it one way and Republicans want to change it the other way, so everyone's afraid to touch it. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, there is an act that's been introduced to Congress. It's called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, and I don't think it's a silver bullet, but... It's a good thing, and what it will do is it will give a bunch of money to states and tribes to do conservation for endangered species, but also species that aren't endangered that are declining to help them before they make it to the Endangered Species Act and we're in extreme damage control at that point. So it's a wiser use of money, I think. And it's really hard to get money for species that aren't endangered because there's such a need for species that are endangered. So this will okay. address that. Mm. Well, and so I got be... to jump on that uh, because he reminded me of something. Uh, the best in, the best environmental policy um, is that is a policy that's actionable and simple. Simple in its implementation, actionable in its results. So something that's enforceable and that we choose as a society, yes, we are going to enforce this, um, preferably with like money and actual things that are hitting, like telling people, no, you cannot break this environmental law. Um, And ones that aren't confusing either. Like, hey, you know, you you can't go over here and let your sewage drain into your backyard. I'm sorry, you need to have some sort of treatment for it, whether or not it's like alternative treatment, which could be like vegetative and fun, or a traditional like septic system. Um, And saying yes or no to those sorts of policies and then actually enforcing them as a society, that's what makes a good policy. Okay. Do you see, and this might be... Sorry, go ahead. 
This might be a really dumb question, but do you feel like a lot of these issues is a lack of education in environmental science? Do you think that more people should be studying this? Education goes so far. Okay. Um, one of my classes I took in school was by an awesome professor who did a bunch of research on humans' attitudes towards natural resources. And she found that education helps a little bit, but people's values generally stop developing by the time they're 23 unless they have a life-changing event that causes them to rethink their values and it is extremely hard to change those values and you won't just do it through education so you have to meet okay. people where they are and start there giving them a pamphlet is not going to change their mind if their mind is already made how sad <laughs> wow, I had yeah, but I feel like that it also starts in like elementary school and how we're raising our children as well. It does. So before 23 or 24 years old, that's the that's the time <laughs> to indoctrinate the youth with information about clean water and trees. Mhm. Mm Be more like Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Be more like the Chioni family being dumped off at parks. <laughs> I think that the, the best environmental policy is right between your ears. And um, I think attitude is number one. And that to change environmental policy for the better and to change environment to the for the better, it's going to require a lot of action by every individual human. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's important to try to change policy at the national level, um, but also, if every if everyone tried to live smaller, we could improve the environment. Um, if you own property, even if it's just an acre or two, you have a big responsibility to your neighbors and also your non-human neighbors. If you have riverfront property and you want to view, you know, a better view of the water, please don't cut all the trees along the river to improve your view. Make that sacrifice for the water quality, for the fish, for the birds, to your neighbors, to not have as expansive of a view as you could if you wrecked that habitat. Um, if you have a 200-year-old tree in your yard and it's starting to show signs of decline and you call up an arborist, uh, don't just have them cut the whole tree down if it can be helped. See if you can just take some limbs off. If it really is threatening your house or power lines or something, you know, a dead tree has a lot of habitat value. So what I've seen a lot of people do is they will just cut the top of the tree off and let it be a big tall stump. And you know, it's dead or it's going to die, but animals can make nests in that. Um, Bugs will eat on it, woodpeckers will eat those bugs, and it can have a ton of habitat value. So thinking about your responsibility if you own property, and also ways that you can help the environment uh, are ways that you can start helping today, right now. Another kind of part to that, because we were talking about responsibility if you own property. Um, and Nissa, we touched on this a little bit in our episode, back on episode 21. We were talking about some of the kind of myths around what's actually helpful to the environment. Uh, Nissa, you gave a great example of the green eco companies that, you know, plant trees. 
but how that can also be problematic because it's like, where, you know, what are these trees? Are they native to the environment? Where are they being planted? You know, th that there's things, there's these ideas or these actions that are taken that sometimes actually can make a problem worse. So what are some examples of common myths that you see where people maybe think they're helping the environment, but they're actually um, not helping at all or they're potentially causing more damage? Mm. I think one of the biggest ones is when, and, and this goes across the board, uh, when I'm scrolling on Instagram, there are a lot of products, right, that are, um, mm -hmm. if you're interested in environmental things, the world starts to know, notice and it starts to advertise to you. Um, and I would say that one of the bigger myths right now is that uh, if you, there's a product out there that's being targeted to you, um, say it's a super great dress that you could wear and it's made of organic cotton um, and you can wear it a hundred days in a row. I've seen this exact ad. Um, it's the hundred day dress challenge. You don't actually need a new thing all the time. And so to be more sustainable doesn't necessarily require you to make a purchase of a new object that was made with energy in a factory somewhere it could make it could what is probably the right choice is to do something where you cut something out of your life instead of making a new purchase to help help the environment shop at the goodwill and thrift yep <laughs> i love the goodwill's business model recycling yep there you go another thing is don't plant wildflowers if they're not native. There are a lot of wildflower seed mixes out there and they might be coming from another state. And some of those wildflowers in there- Or another part there, of the world. Yeah, or another part of the world. And some of those wildflowers in there might be invasive in your area. So you need to check up on the species that are in there. And if there isn't a list of the species, don't plant them. Also, do not buy ladybugs or praying mantis egg cases from the garden department at the grocery store when they have them in season because we have many species of mantises and ladybugs and they might be from another part of the U.S. or another part of the world and that could be the next invasive species that could be predating on an endangered insect or it could become the next agricultural crop pest that we're going to spend millions of dollars trying to eradicate but never fully eradicate because it's out there. Mm. We produce mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, myth number three is that uh, you, that the world is going to solve all the environmental problems. And I think I just touched on this in my last, uh, in our last podcast together, but that the technology is going to solve our environmental problems. And that's just not true. We are not going to Tesla ourselves out of an environmental crisis. We are going to have to make actual changes in our real world lives that don't involve like putting on a sexy space suit and like just looking environmental. I don't know. Like it's, it, we're not going to be able to pump money into some sort of a magical chemistry solution that restores the whole ozone. Mm-hmm. Also, if we come up with technology, I think we have the technology to save the earth. Um, but the technology has to be economic for everyone to use, and then everyone has to want to use it. So we could come up with a car that runs on air, but can everyone afford it? And 
even if everyone could afford it, you're not going to be able to force everyone to to get one and mm. trade in their vehicle that they love so much. That's a really good point. Yeah. The technology might actually be medieval technology that's going to save this earth. So everybody just get out your primitive medieval tools and you have to use them now instead. I'm sorry. That'd be oh, wildly gosh, unpopular. That sounds like America. Yeah. <laughs> I heard a radio interview with uh, a researcher who came up with a the purest white paint and if you paint this on buildings it reflects almost all of the sunlight and you can use it to cool the earth but you'd have to paint it on every building now can you imagine if the u.s government said the top of every building has to be painted with this pure white paint and all the skyscrapers have to be whitewashed there would probably be huge protests and riots in the streets and mm -hmm. people not allowing the government to come and paint their house <laughs> you know this whitewash color because that's communism uh, right we, we can't all look the same technology. oh no <laughs> yeah so even with these um, technologies it's not we we can't out out technology the environmental crisis i remember having a conversation with you andrew at your wedding last year um, we were talking about eating fish and you told me, I cannot remember, but you were telling me some fish that you do and don't eat. I feel like that's a really interesting and valuable thing for people to know. Correct. Um, if you like to go fishing or you want to go fishing, look up the fish consumption advisories because in many places there are contaminants like PCBs and mercury that stick around in the environment for decades or even hundreds of years or even thousands of years and um, because of our history of industrial revolution and a, a long period of unregulated uh, factories we have these pollutants that are we have to live with for a long time and so in Illinois there were advisories uh, for fish that you should only eat a little bit of uh, every month because you could get mercury poisoning and damage your nervous system, which is really bad. <laughs> um, and this is going to talk right now about a source to help look that up. I thought he was going to talk about it, but I guess I'm going to talk <laughs> about it. Um, <clears throat> a really good place to find out if... Uh, if the thing that you're looking at on the menu is sustainable or not is called fishwatch.gov fishwatch.gov and you can type in the species for example it says find a fish and i'm going to type in pollock i don't know how to spell pollock like that is it oh i did it <laughs> um, and uh, i've got two choices i've got um i don't know i'm going to click on one of them and it says that the fish rating is... This is the Alaska Pollock. The Alaska Pollock. It gives po um, population information, and it talks about bycatch and the habitat impacts. And it says that the trawling that they use to catch the Pollock sometimes makes contact with the bottom and but has a minimum minimal impact anyway it's a good source if you want to find out if your fish on the menu is something that's sustainable or not that's awesome mm, that's yep. really interesting it's like a way for people to be able to really consciously eat uh 
you know, fish or is there actually, you know what, is there anything like this for other animals as well or just for fish? I don't know because we're fish people. <laughs> this website will have um, will have other things, I believe, too. So I think you could probably type in like lobster. Um, but I wouldn't recommend eating lobster because they can live up to 80 years and they're just really cute. And think about if you were 70 years old living in a hole this is... and just minding your own business after a long life of being a lobster, then somebody ripped you out and ate you. Oh, see, this is why I'm vegan, Margaret. Now you understand. <laughs> Sometimes I eat Dungeness crab, and when I bring crab home, I'm very unpopular with Nissa. <laughs> and our Dungeness crab fishery is pretty good on the West Coast. Um, they are harvesting more than I would like because... Even if you're harvesting enough that the population replenishes itself, we're not required to think about other species. So other animals want to eat that fish too, or that crab. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if we're harvesting 90% of the male crabs every year, which is what we're doing, um, those crabs aren't available to other species. So, you know. I would like us to harvest like 50% of the male crabs every year. And so like a quarter of mm -hmm. the total population instead of 40%. Um, and, and also, even if fishing for something is, is legal, you should try to find more information on its conservation status. Um, so for example, just, just because you can keep fish doesn't mean that you, you may want to. So a fish that I like to fish for and eat is the coastal cutthroat trout, which is our most common trout species on the Oregon coast. And uh, they're pretty abundant when the, uh, there are pretty much enough to fill the available habitat. And if I harvest a couple, that's going to leave room for a couple other fish that would otherwise starve and not do very well to have more food to eat and there will end up being the same amount of trout or almost as many trout. But um, if an endangered species of salmon, we have a good year and you're able to fish for them, you might want to think, well, do I really want to keep one of those endangered salmon just because we have a few extra this year? And I was looking up crab puns, but I couldn't find a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let us know if you find any, so we can put it in our show notes. <laughs> They're all really bad. Well, I, I, had, I had one more question I wanted to ask. It might be kind of a broad question, and then I wanted to turn the floor over to both of you. Um, if there was anything we didn't talk about today that you did want to talk about, I'd love to hear that. But I think the last question I have would be, um, in your time out there in the Pacific Northwest, what are some of the biggest environmental changes that you both have experienced, both within your career and in your personal life? As an example, you know, I just moved to Texas, and I remember uh, when I moved to Las Vegas 10 years ago, driving into Las Vegas and seeing Lake Mead. And this summer, when we left Las Vegas to move to Texas, we drove out on the same highway that I drove in on when I moved 10 years earlier, and Lake Mead doesn't even look the same because it's drying up and evaporating so quickly. So that's something that I noticed a huge environmental change in the in the Southwest just within the last 10 years. Is there anything like that that you both have seen and experienced in the Pacific Northwest in your in your you know adulthood life? Water use. 
um, streams drying up. Climate change is making it worse, but we created the problem in the first place. Um, there's a thing called water rights, and they go back at least a hundred years, a couple hundred years, and uh, people who have a big water right with their land, they have it forever with that piece of land unless they sell that water right to someone, and usually the water rights associated with any given river in the West are more than the amount of, river, of water that is in that river. Um, but you cannot legally take away that water right. So I see a lot of too much water being used, um, and that's a problem we need to figure out. Uh, another problem is uh, people diverting water for frivolous uses like a paddling pond. Um, and also a loss of water uh, associated with deforestation. So in Western Oregon, we are the land of clear cuts and timber is worth a lot of money right now. So a lot of trees are being cut down. And the more of a watershed that is clear cut and planted with even age rows of a single species of tree, the less water it's going to have. Because when you clear cut, um, the ground isn't gonna be able to hold water until you release it during the summer. And then those small trees um, have less biomass and fewer roots in the ground to hold water in the ground than big old growth trees, or even trees that are like 80 to 100 years old and aren't quite old growth yet. So the more clear cuts and timber plantations you have, the less stream flow you're going to have. So it starts here, it starts in the mountains and the forest with less water, and then works its way downstream as humans divert that water and use it for other purposes. Um, and so there are often problems with people's wells drying up because there's so little water that the groundwater is going down. Mm. Uh, and for me, you were wondering about the big changes that I've seen, and I haven't really been here that long to see the landscape level changes, although when we drive around the area, we can see logging happening pretty much whenever we're out, active logging, active equipment on the soil, destroying soil quality. But I would like to bring it to a little bit of a happier side in that since I moved here, there has been talk on high legislative levels all the way down to actually making commitments to remove the Klamath dams on the Klamath River, which is just to the south of us. And we are in a time which is pretty fantastic where we're starting to think about dam removal. Apparently the movie Frozen 2 is about dam removal. I haven't watched it, but if you haven't watched it, I should watch it and you should watch it too. And, um, and we're seeing this shift where if somebody wants to build a high head dam, which means it's just really tall, like the Hoover Dam. Fish are never going to get over it, something like that. No, we're, we're in a time where it it's really hard to build one of those. We're not just doing it willy-nilly. And we're starting to talk very seriously about taking some of them out, which is awesome news. And both for those big systems and even for smaller dams that are just created, say, like at a county park, we are turning a point where a lot of that infrastructure is so old now that it's too costly to maintain. And I hate to say that that's part of the reason why these things are coming out, but um, we are starting to see the 
removal of these big dams and hopefully there'll be a lot more in the future and that is going to open up so much habitat and create a more connected world and um, a better place for everyone human persons and non-human persons the dam removal on the Klamath is a big deal it'll open up hundreds of miles of salmon and steelhead habitat and the river will be free-flowing again the water will be I won't say it, it'll never be toxic again, but the water will be less toxic every summer from toxic algae blooms um, because the reservoirs behind the dams that are going to be removed, uh, they heat up in the sun and they turn into a pea soup of algae, including algae that produce toxins that are harmful to our liver. Um, and also when the water heats up and that water goes over the dams downstream, it's really Warm water is a really good environment for pathogens, pathogens that are harmful to fish and even to humans. And so there are these big fish kills uh, pretty often in the Klamath River where whole runs of salmon will get wiped out because the water is so toasty warm that um, these pathogens, these um, parasites, will just go crazy. So. Um, these dams coming out has a long time, been a long time coming, and it's going to do really good things for the river. And the Klamath River is one of the biggest rivers on the West Coast, so it's a really big deal. Wow, so that'll make a lot of change, it sounds like, in the area. A lot of good change. Yeah, that's the kind we like. <laughs> now, is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you both wanted to share in today's podcast episode? Mm-hmm. I had one thing I wanted to say, and this is perfect. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, and that is that we have midterm elections coming up. And that is, uh, first of all, everybody vote. Vote for what you care about. Vote for what you think matters. And to me, and I would like to say for Drew as well, uh, environmental policies, environmental records of the politicians running is a big thing that we vote on. And I wanted to give a plug for that to say, if you care about the environment, vote for someone who cares about the environment and understands it. And um, that's not always tied to party lines. Here in Oregon, the Democrats aren't necessarily super pro-environment. You would think they maybe would be, but not all of them are. Um, it really varies um, person by person, state by state. So you do have to do your research. Look and, up their record. Yeah, look up their record and, um, yeah, do a good vote. Sure, do you got anything? Next time you go outside, look at the trees, listen to the birds. Um, appreciate nature. You'll care more about it and want to do more for it. Uh, download the iNaturalist app. I have found out found so many new plant and insect and uh, um, and other species through using this app. You can take photos of plant leaves and bark and upload them, and it'll help you identify them. And then you can see what their range is and whether it's native or non-native or maybe even invasive. Um, and I've I've used it to on plants and found out oh no this is invasive. I need to pull this thing out of the ground and I need to pull out every one that I see. <laughs> <laughs> or, wow, this is rare. This is a really special plant. I need to start looking out for this plant and uh, locating where it is and telling maybe the expert on this plant who studies it at the university. And it's also just a fun way to interact more with the world around you. So go out and enjoy the world.
<laughs> I love that. Thank you. All right, can we do some fun questions? Fun questions. Fun questions. Nissa, you've already answered some of these, but we'll do them all again. So I'll ask I'll I'll ask a question and then you both can take turns answering it. All right, so if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? We talked about this oh, the other day. Okay, we're going to slightly tweak your question. Okay, go if for it. If you could have one mostly lame superpower but slightly good superpower, what would it be? And what was yours, Drew? So I think of this as a super superpower. And that is I could make plants grow faster. So I could plant plants in my restoration pro projects and I could sit there and watch them and will them to grow bigger faster. <laughs> that's so cool. Which okay. I thought would be good, but I made it lame by saying you have to watch them. You know, like that's the mm -hmm. that's the downside of your superpower. You have to like sit and then concentrate on the plants. And if I could monetize that, I could get paid money to meditate and watch plants grow. <laughs> watch oh, grass. That's amazing. <laughs> and my my lame superpower would be uh, I would like to be able to change my foot size when I'm at the store looking for shoes. Like, I'm in the Goodwill, and I found this awesome pair of Brooks the other day, and they were a half size too small. My superpower is I want to be able to make my my foot a half size bigger or smaller, you know, depending on the day so I can fit into the shoe that I want. <laughs> I love this. This is so amazing. <laughs> I see that as um, a exponential increase in the number of pairs of shoes you have. <laughs> okay you guys hang on one second i have a very anxious brayden here who wants to also answer this question Ooh, yes please brayden would you like to come share with us what superpower you would like come here come over to the microphone come share mm, super strength super strength whoa strength. love it <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> what is your favorite comfort food? I said sinful potatoes last time, and I'm sticking with it. They're potatoes. They're sinful. Look them up. <laughs> I had two of my favorite comfort foods for lunch today, and they were a trout that I caught yesterday and mushrooms that I foraged and fermented like sauerkraut with a bunch of yummy spices. Fermented Ooh, mushrooms. Nice. Ooh. It's good for your gut. Mm -hmm. You know what? I actually I actually I actually created a special question for you both because I know that you're both mushroom enthusiasts. What is your favorite mushroom? Oh man. My favorite mushroom right now is called the questionable stropharia. It is related to the Amanita species, the, the toadstools, but it's not quite an Amanita. It's a Stropharia undulata, and it has a beautiful little skirt around the cap, which sort of dangles down and looks like, uh, maybe it looks like a spider web almost. It has a veil, which is the circle around the stem, and the spore print is very tall, and then I make spore prints of them to find out how, what color they are, and then I sell the spore prints on Etsy. And the spore print is purple. It's a really dark purple color, and it's an awesome mushroom. But it's also poisonous, so don't eat it. 
<laughs> Nissa likes mushrooms based on how they look and how they make her feel. Yeah. I'm a lot more basic, and I like mushrooms depending on how good they taste to me. So my favorite is a bear's head mushroom, which also looks really cool. It's like kind of a big pom-pom that grows on dead trees and logs. It looks kind of like a lion's mane and might be related. I'm not sure. But it, it tastes very delicious, and I've only ever found one. It tastes like noodley, right? That's cauliflower. Oh, never mind. <laughs> cauliflower mushroom is another favorite of mine. It looks like a mass of egg noodles, and it grows on dead wood. And Nissa and our friend Eric made beef stroganoff with a big cauliflower mushroom we found and and many wild mushrooms um, even when cooked properly can give you a tummy ache if you eat a lot of them at once uh, or you haven't eaten that species before and you eat a lot at once um, and some piece, people are just sensitive so we actually got a tummy ache from the delicious beef stroganoff Aww, but it was totes worth it <laughs> and I should have eaten less than three plates of it oh. <laughs> 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 All right, next one. What brings you the most joy in your life right now? Finding a mushroom that I can eat. <laughs> there is an explosion of endorphins in, in my head. I'm hiking through the woods and I see a patch of edible mushrooms and I forget all else and I rush <laughs> to the mushrooms and gaze upon them and pick them and clean them up and put them in my bag and I feel like I just found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Plus bonus, I can eat it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and for me, I think the thing that brings me most joy right now are my neighbors. I've got a couple Aww. really awesome, we've got a couple really awesome neighbors. Uh, Jeff and Pat live next, <laughs> live next door and they're just these awesome kooky older people. And um, I made a new friend who lives up the road. His name's AJ. And he gave us plums and we fermented the plums. And then he got stoked on fermentation. And so we're making wine back and forth. And uh, it just makes me so happy to make new friends, especially people that come from a different generation or a different sort of back life background than me. And um, being able to connect with them on different topics is wonderful. A life lesson I learned from this is talk to your neighbors, talk to all your neighbors, make friends with your neighbors, help out your neighbors, brew apple cider with your neighbors. Aww. Your I life will be greatly improved. <laughs> I didn't specifically say that last one, but yes, also that one. <laughs> That's so cool. There may be a double batch of apple cider going on. <laughs> Two entire trees worth of apples. Oh, wow. And they were free. I love that. I, I just love how like the simple little things both make you two so joyful. And that's like one of my favorite things about both of you. You both are such a delight to be around because you just, you are, you're just so grounded in the present moment and you're so in tune with nature and you're just, you're just, I don't know. There's something just so precious about both of you and it makes me so happy. Thank you. Thank you. We're just riding the roller coaster. <laughs> Now, um, I forgot to send over the question about the songs. Um, Nissa, does Drew know anything about the songs? If not, we can... Oh, he does not. That's brand new. The songs? Okay. So this is kind of a loaded must question. I sing them? So here's what... Yes, I, I must sing them. Yes, you have to sing all of your favorite songs right now, live on the podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
No, it's here. <laughs> the look on his face. So the, I listen to death metal and I can't replicate that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the question, actually, I will state the question. If you want to take a stab at it spontaneously, you can. If not, think about it and send me a message and I will put your response in the show notes. Um, Nissa has already answered this question before. So the question is, what are three songs that elicit the strongest emotions for you? Oh, Nissa, you already answered this. I already answer. did this. You yeah. gotta do this. But you gotta edit your answers now to one of them has to be Jazz Emu, your new favorite artist. I can throw that in at the end, I yeah. think. Yeah. Jazz Emu, he's a funny guy. That's all. Jazz Emu. <laughs> the songs that elicit the biggest emotional response. Oh, I don't know. If you wanna think about it and we just put it in the show notes, we can do that too. Okay. That's a big question. Uh, He does sing a small song to the dogs, which is, Who are my doggies? Who are my doggies? (laughs) Can you sing it? Oh, that one you got to sing. You got to sing that one now. That's it. That was the whole song, but maybe you can do it in your voice. (laughs) Who are my doggies? Are my doggies? Are my doggies? Who are my doggies? Who are my doggies? Are you my doggies? (laughs) Are you my doggies? Do you love me? (laughs) Meanwhile, the dogs are going nuts. Uh-huh. It's the important questions to ask, you know. Who are my doggies? It's you. Are you my doggies? Yes. The, there isn't really a tune to it, and it kind of changes, but generally I get the dogs excited, it. and Nissa sometimes reprimands me for yeah. getting the dogs excited. But we don't have super excitable dogs, so I can get them to go nuts, and they're not going to, like, break a window or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I feel like now you singing that has to somehow become part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Auto-tune it. Mm. We can put like a whole dubstep like beat behind it, turn it into a thing. It'll go viral on TikTok. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who are my doggy? (laughs) That wasn't a doggy. That was a, a, what are those things that say quack? (laughs) That was supposed to be a dubstep sound. (laughs) You know, you know. Oh, gosh. Well, Andrew and Nissa, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful. Oh, grateful. Agnes, gratitude prompt. Okay, we're going to speak to our gratitude prompt here. We have to do gratitude prompt. All right, I'll start with our guests. Andrew, what is? what are you grateful for today? Today I'm grateful for rain. Our fall rains were a long time in coming. In Western Oregon, we're having scary periods of the winter where it's like summer, which is really bad because it's our, supposed to be our wet time of year. Um, so... It, we just got our first really big rain two nights ago, and it was thundering on the roof. And our bucket outside that collects rainwater, collected rain, <laughs> and my, <laughs> my plants are enjoying it. And the fish, Aww. the salmon, they're entering the rivers, but the water's the lowest it's been all year. And so that water is going to help those fish get upstream to make more fish. And also the mushrooms are going to really start popping off. That's awesome. What about you, Nissa? What are you grateful for today? I'm baking bread. And so I also am brewing things at the same time, the cider and the buckets. Uh, so today I am grateful for yeast, 
yeast. Oh my gosh. It does its job. We don't ask anything of it. Like, it just, it just does it. Like, it's just, oh, it's so wonderful. Thank you, yeast, for being the producer of carbon dioxide and bubbles in my bread. I love it. I'm grateful for what my doggies you? who are rubbing on my legs right now. Aww. What are your doggies' names again? Our Chloe, dog Chloe and Jagger. Our, our newer dog, Jagger, was uh, pretty scared of me when we first got him. Aww. He was just so rubbing his head on my leg in love, which is Aww. makes me really happy that he trusts me now. What about you, Margaret? What are you grateful for today? I am going to second Andrew on the rain. I am also grateful for the rain. Today it was raining all day, and it was my day off, so I got to have one of those cozy days in bed where I got to just listen to music and have candles going and and listen to the rain outside so yeah Agnes what are you grateful for today I think I'm gonna have to side with Nissa because I had a bagel this morning and it was delicious I'm so grateful for bread (laughs) carbs so good. It hurts my stomach, but it's okay. I'll forgive it. <laughs> no biggie. 